active in Syria. The U.S. Treasury Department said the move was aimed at strengthening existing efforts to choke off the Syrian government's access to the international financial system. New sanctions were also imposed on two Syrian state refineries and six senior officials. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis on this Friday. Barclays pulls back from investment banking and says it will fire at least 7,000 workers. Apple moves to buy music company Beats for $3.2 billion. And former U.S. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner says the United States considered nationalizing the banks. And as we get started this morning, a little tease for your breakfast. The group is too exposed to volatility in the investment bank. So that's Barclays CEO Anthony Jenkins. We'll get that full story in just a moment. And also this. And we think that you could be getting your biggest correction in the S&P since 2011. Ouch. That's Chris Wood from CLSA, the well-known strategist. He's in that camp, by the way, that the sell-off in technology and biotech shares is giving you a big signal. Well, I think what you're seeing here clearly is a rotation from the momentum stocks that led the market rally into more value stocks. However, what, what, is, what it potentially signals is the beginning of a broader-based equity correction. Our technical analyst at CLSA has been warning about deteriorating breadth on the S&P for several months. We have margin debt as percentage of market, U.S. market cap as all-time highs. So the interesting point for me is whether this is a signal that a more broader-based correction is coming, in which case it won't just be uh, the leading Internet stocks that correct. So that would be my base case, and we think that you could be getting your biggest correction in the S&P since 2011. So that's the context there for that comment. Uh, Chris Wood from CLSA uh, saying that um, he likes ASEAN, he likes India, uh, but he doesn't like the developed markets. He particularly thinks the S&P 500 is going to correct significantly. He says, though, that the biggest uh, bubble out there is really in credit, not in stock. So we'll hear more from him in just a few minutes. And in our featured interview topics, we'll be looking at Canada's liquefied natural gas exports with Dave Bennett of Fortis, B.C. We'll also be taking a look at the communications business of satellites with Tom Choi of Asia Broadcast Satellite. And Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting will join us to try to make some sense of these fickle international markets. Speaking of the markets in Asia, the Nikkei is down 42 points in the first five minutes of trading, 14,121. In Australia, the index is down as well. The ASX 200 down 14 points. That's a drop of a quarter of a percent. We do see slightly uh, movement to the upside in Seoul, though. The cost be up a couple of points. That's just a tenth of one percent. The dollar-yen is 101.61, so not much change there. The euro has pulled back a little bit on comments there from Mario Draghi. I'll bring you some of those comments in just a moment. Uh, the euro now trading at 1.384 U.S. dollars, moving back down from $1.39. Okay, so let's get some of these stories uh, now. Uh, Barclays cutting 7,000 jobs at its investment bank. That's about a quarter of the total. The bank has indicated that it will scale back from efforts to have a massive global presence. More now from the chief executive officer, Anthony Jenkins. The group is too exposed to volatility in the investment bank. 
What has not changed is my determination to deliver returns that shareholders expect. But how we achieve that objective has to take account of this new operating environment. In the future, Barclays will be a focused international bank. We will deliver improved returns and growth by building on our strengths, concentrating on high growth areas, eliminating marginal businesses, and focus on cost. The job announcement brings the total number cut to 19,000 by 2016. Barclays will create a bad bank to dispose of 115 billion pounds or some 195 billion dollars of assets. And in the new focus, the bank will primarily target the United Kingdom and the United States. In our investment bank, we will continue to build on areas where we have a sustainable competitive advantage. In particular, our distinct advantage of having two large investment banking home markets in the U.S. and the U.K. He says the Asian unit will be, quote, more focused, whatever that means. Um, the CEO also said that the market faces a structural rather than a cyclical decline and that investment banking revenue will be weak for some time. Another headline story this morning, Apple reportedly close to acquiring headphone maker and music service Beats Electronics for $3.2 billion. Bloomberg and the FT reporting this this morning. It would be Apple's largest ever purchase. The deal would give the world's most valuable company a stronger foothold in the music accessories business, and it would bolster Apple's online music streaming capabilities. And uh, so we'll be following this story. It's not confirmed yet, but again, reported by Bloomberg and the FT. FT. The European Central Bank says it is ready to take action next month to boost the eurozone economy if inflation forecasts merit it. The ECB says that the euro's strength is a serious concern. Uh, the chief Mario Draghi said that the exchange rate would have to be addressed. The strengthening of the exchange rate in the context of low inflation is a cause for serious concern in view of the governing council. And the question that we have to look at, uh, into is uh, whether there are other factors besides, uh, besides energy and food that could uh, keep inflation low. And uh, basically, there are, well, some of these factors are the exchange rate and uh, uh, the uh, possible uh, weak domestic demand and weak employment figures. I would say that the governing council is comfortable with acting next time. Next time. So he's saying that no action now. In fact, the ECB did stand pat, but uh, next month might be a different story. On Wall Street, stocks were down as tech shares uh, erased a rally and sold off for a third consecutive day. It's part of a couple of months of selling down of these high flyers. Tesla, for instance, down 11 percent after saying tight battery supplies would continue to restrain growth. The S&P 500 was down not point one percent at eighteen seventy five. The Dow Jones Industrial Average actually eked out a gain up thirty two points at sixteen thousand five fifty. But of course the S P five hundred, the much broader index, and most stocks were down the Nasdaq down zero point four percent. It reversed an earlier rally of one percent. And the Russell two thousand slumped a full one percent. We get more now from Chris Wood. He thinks credit is a lot more overvalued than stocks. 
banks. I think the biggest excesses in financial markets are not in equities, they're in the credit space where the con continuing quantitative easing pursued by central bank zero rates has led to a revival of the same dodgy lending practices that caused the 2008 financial crisis. So the real excesses aren't in equities, they're in the credit markets where you're getting money lent on, in, on very imprudent ways. He's the top-ranked strategist in Asia. He thinks central banks in the Western world are mostly misguided. The central banks are not going to be able to normalize monetary policy, that the system is addicted to zero rates, cheap money, and these zero rates lead to leverage carry trades that create more systemic risk. So the way out of this problem is to raise rates and end quantitative easing. The authorities in the Western world don't want to do that. And the best place to invest in equities is emerging markets, which don't have these distorted monetary policies, which ultimately will fail. That's Christopher Wood from CLSA. That actually ran on Bloomberg yesterday. This is a little bit old, but I picked it because I knew that it would uh, be right down Peter Lewis's alley. And uh, he's kind of in the same mind uh, of you. Let me just mention what Europe did overnight. Uh, European markets were, were actually just a little bit higher. Um, not bad performance uh, if you're long. The DAX up 86 points, 96.07. The FTSE 100 was up about six-tenths of a percent. And a big rally in the CAC, it was up 1.4% for the day. So Peter Lewis joins me in our studios here at the mothership of RTHK on uh, Broadcast Drive. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So these are pretty fickle markets, as I said. Uh, a couple of themes work for a few days and then it gets trashed. But I, I, I have mentioned yesterday that there's really three basic themes so far this morning. Taper is not really one of them. That was something that we talked a lot about in the latter part of last year. But definitely the big sell-off in tech and biotech and the Macau gaming, the high flyers, that's one theme. Uh, the second theme is uh, really... China stocks right across the board uh, being hammered. And the third is that the bond complex is acting in a very strange way. We thought that the taper would mean higher uh, bond yields, and instead bond yields have gone down a lot. Apparently, people who buy bonds don't think the U.S. and also the global economy is in very good shape. Well, and also there's a shortage of bonds. Um, you know, the Fed is buying most of them. That the is moment. a very good point. Um, so, you know, there is a, a real problem, particularly at the long end um, of the curve, you know, once you start to get to 10 year, 30 year, where do you go to buy the bonds when they're all on the Fed's balance sheet? So should we ignore it then? It's not really a signal that is telling us much because it's so distorted. Well, everyone's crowding into the same trade when you have central banks who have been injecting a massive amount of um, sort of stimulus into the, into the financial system you have everyone sort of piggybacking off the Fed. And, and, you know, the rates that the Fed sets anchors everything else around the world, which is why you're seeing almost the ludicrous situation where, you know, Spanish and Italian bonds, you know, have had a huge um, sort of rally over the last sort of few months because they're, they're in, in turn sort of anchored to these very low um, sort of rates. We've seen a huge bubble in high yield um, sort of debt. You know, people are piling back into, you know, into junk bonds just to try and chase um, some yields. Do you think a very viable trade would be to sell Italian and Spanish 10-year bonds and buy, I mean, if you you're a bond person, you probably want to buy bonds. So you have those, you sell them, you buy U.S. treasuries because the yields are fairly similar. And we don't normally think that um, Spanish uh, credit would be on the same level as U.S. credit. No, that, that, that's absolutely right. But I, I think, you know, there is going to be a, a key development. We're seeing it already. One of the things that has come out of the markets this week is that two of the world's largest central banks, the Fed and the Bank of Japan, are exiting from their stimulus. I mean, the, despite, you know, the, 
uh, Janet Yellen talking about her concerns about you know potential problems in the housing market feeding into the the economy. What is absolutely clear is that by October the Fed is done. You know QE will be over. More surprisingly, the Bank of Japan is indicating that you know it might also be done quicker than people thought as well. It you know it indicated concerns about you know the effects of sort of monetary stimulus on the you know financial bubbles and you know and, and the economy overall. It's certainly not going to provide any more stimulus, and maybe they they might withdraw quicker. So we're moving into a risk-off environment. So do you think that you can connect the dots here a little bit, that the taper is actually a big story, but it's just kind of out of the news right now, and that investors, the reason that they're selling off growth stocks is that when the taper goes – uh, they're worried about what's absolutely. going to happen with Western economies. Ab- absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, you're, you're seeing that in what's going on behind um, the markets. The major indices, the S&P 500, the Dow are holding up. The Russell 2000 is in a bear market now. Half of the stocks have corrected by more than 20% in the last few months. And, you know, the Russell's at a six-month low. The Nasdaq is breaking down. We're seeing particularly in, uh, you know, biotech and tech stocks. I mean, Twitter's down now 50% from its uh, from its high earlier this year. Beneath the surface, there is a lot of worrying things um, sort of going on, which suggests that, you know, we're in the ninth innings now of, uh, of, of this market rally. Okay, I'll take the other side of that. And, and that is that, you know, we have, we're just having a very healthy correction in way overvalued, way overblown stocks. And a lot of them, like Google and others that are making money, are very close to their 200-day moving averages, and they're bouncing a little bit to the upside off of it. Twitter has come all the way back to its almost all the way back to its issue price. It went public at 26. It first opened trading over 40, went up to 73. Now it was trading today in this latest session under $30 for a while. Then it rallied 4%. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of noise um, at the moment in the market. Oh, break my uh, heart! You know, <laughs> you just call what I just said noise. <laughs> but but I think you know what what is worrying also is what's going on in some of the emerging markets. I mean, emerging markets cent- um, central banks are raising rates. We're seeing a breakdown in some of the emerging market stocks, um, uh, you know, as well. I mean, China. So, do you think uh, a really big? huge crisis is coming. Uh, you know, overnight, Mark mm-hmm. Faber, one Dr. Doom, another Dr. Doom, Noriel Rabini was saying a credit crisis, uh, is, you know, is looming. Uh, Faber says that we're going to see a massive correction. And then you heard Chris Wood saying, you know, big correction as well. I, I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for the for the central banks of the world who have now, you know, between them, the big four central banks, $10 trillion of assets now on their balance sheet. So, and, uh, so you think that they got us in this mess and they're going to pay a price now because their, their public was saying we're exiting and then all of a sudden, you know, the bottom's going to drop out. What are they going to do then? I, I think there is going to be a correction. I mean, I, I've thought for a while, you know, that this is going to cause a lot of difficulties for the markets when, when the central banks try to exit. There's no easy way out of this and they are exiting. Um, and, you know, I think that we're going to see over the next few months, the markets start to take a lot more notice of that. You're not really uh, inspiring a lot of people with hope going into the weekend. Uh, But if you were a buyer of something, what would that something be? Well, I mean, I, I would do the, you know, the the risk off trades. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, gold and U.S. treasuries, gold and U.S. treasuries. Okay. Um, What about um, 
China, because we haven't really mentioned much. Uh, I ran extensive commentary yesterday from uh, Jeffrey Gundlach, one of the uh, uh, premier bond investors over the past 25 years. And he said that one of the things he looks at in the morning is the Shanghai Composite. He can't believe that it that, that it, it is so low and stays so low and never moves yeah. up. Uh, yep. Do you in any way like China stocks? At the moment, I'd be very careful because China is determined to attack its credit bubble. Um, it sends out you know a lot of signs that it wants to rein in the excesses in the in the shadow banking system. We know that you know uh, that there's been a lot of lending. You know the, the growth in the economy has been a credit fueled um, economy, but the returns on those assets are, are getting lower and lower, and, and the economic data that's coming out of China continues to be sort of relentlessly poor. So we've seen the service sector industry slow in April. We know the manufacturing industry, the PMI is below 50 now. Um, you know, the economic data in the short term is, is not um, is not good. Um, but that makes sense. You know, if, if, if China is going to try and attack this credit bubble, there is going to be in the short term a price in terms of economic growth. Short term pain, long term gain. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks very much, Peter. Always a pleasure. I can't believe the time's gone by so fast, but it's time to go. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Well, Canada is looking to Asia for a growth market for liquefied natural gas. British Columbia, Canada's westernmost province, is targeting a million metric tons a year of natural gas by 2020. Achieving that will require edging out competition from the U.S. and Australia. We're joined by Dave Bennett, Director for External Relations at Fortis, B.C. Dave, good morning. Good morning. Um, why, uh, why would you uh, think that Asia would be such a good market for this? Well, uh, British Columbia is, sits on really an ocean of natural gas right now that's just been proved up in the last five to ten years. And um, we're the closest uh, sea uh, ports to the Asian market. Um, British Columbia is quite far north and taking the circle up through uh, the north, you, we're, we're a day or two shorter than other markets in the south and uh, two days shorter than bringing uh, gas through the Gulf Coast and the Panama Canal. I know one of the problems for the United States trying to export this, it doesn't have the terminals uh, ready, uh, does Canada? No, no, that's that's the issue. And as I mentioned, that this is something that's come in the last five or ten years, finding all this gas, um, you know, ten years ago, we had 52 trillion cubic feet of gas in the province. Now one field in the province, 2,000 trillion cubic feet. So um, right now we're producing about 1 trillion cubic feet a day in British Columbia. And, um, you know, we have enough gas to last for hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's 13 projects on, on the board and it's early days yet. Um, we're hoping to get one of the first projects up and running, one of our customers, uh, wood fiber LNG that they're based in Singapore. Um, they're looking at a early 2017 delivery date. Isn't it a lot more profitable to get oil from shale than gas? Um, they're different. Uh, they're different uh, geological structures. In in our province, our shale is gas prone, so that's why we're looking at gas. Um, in other places, there is oil shale as well. And do you think uh, that it's safe? Uh, do you not worry about the environmentalist positions about uh, 
uh, horizontal drilling and, and fracking uh, in terms of the impact on the water supply and just the overall safety of it? Well, it's it's something that everybody in British Columbia, we're, our environment in British Columbia is very pristine. So we're it's something we're always very concerned about. But it's not a new industry to us. We've been... Um, We've had an oil and gas industry in British Columbia for for 60 years, and fracking has been taking place for for pretty well 60 years. So the other good thing for us is that we also regulated our, our provincial government um, is the regulator. So uh, if we need to change something, it can happen very very quickly. But I have never I've been in the industry for 30 years. I've never ever heard of an issue. I mean, water use is is something that we need to monitor, but um, no issues from pollution or or any other other concerns that you hear about. The cost differential of natural gas in North America versus Asia is quite significant, about three or four times. Uh, But then if you transport it by sea over here, how much uh, cost does that add? Well, it it adds significantly, and I'm... I'm not the expert in uh, in how those costs work, but the, yeah, the, there's there is room to add on those costs. The the commodity price in North America right now is about five dollars an MMBTU or five dollars a a gigajoule. They're pretty much the same. I think it's <laughs> uh, over. order of magnitude. In Asia, the spot market is fourteen fifteen dollars. Mm, so yeah. there's a lot of margin there, and that's what these large companies are are seeing. Um, we're the distribution uh, company in British Columbia, so we deliver uh, gas to people's homes and businesses and industry. So um, we're we're actually looking at smaller niche players that would would build smaller natural gas plants like wood fiber. But some of these very large plants are looking at coming on in you know the early 2020 kind of time frame, and they're very very big and. They have to be big to to be able to control those margins. Is this a big game changer, you think, for the North American economy? It's a game changer for our economy, for sure. I mean, that's why our our premier's here today, uh, promoting the industry. And it, as I said, it's it's just come up in the last five to ten years with this technological change. We always knew that we were sitting on this resource, but we didn't know how to get it um, cost effectively. Yeah. All right, Dave. Thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Dave Bennett, Director External Relations for this BC. Well, how about this for an investment? You take several hundred million U.S. dollars, pack it all into a metal box a few meters square, put it on top of a rocket, light the torch, and just walk away. If you're lucky, the rocket goes up, the new satellite goes into orbit, and you can reap five times your investment over about five years. If you're not lucky at all, the rocket explodes, and you've basically lost everything. Our media contributor, James Ross from Lightning International, joins us to discuss who's doing this. And we have a guest, the chief executive officer of ABS. Asia Broadcast Satellite, Tom Choi. Both welcome to our studios. Uh, James, take it away. Uh, Well, this is a a great uh, industry, uh, Tom, if it works out like that and you can make five times the the investment. Uh, It it sounds pretty high risk, though. Well, uh, it doesn't have to be as risky as um, you just described it. Uh, The satellite industry is about 50 years old, and it's very um, refined in the way risk is mitigated and managed. Uh, even though it costs somewhere between two to three hundred million dollars to build a satellite and launch it, there's launch insurance available. So, sh- should in the unfortunate event a satellite launch not go successfully, you get a hundred percent of your money back. So, first of all, I mean, who are your customers? Um, you know, uh, presumably they're telecom companies, basically, are they? Our, our 
companies are both media-oriented as well as telecom-oriented. In the media space, uh, you would recognize some of our companies, uh, customers like Fox International, Star TV, MTV, ITV, and, and companies of that nature. We also have telecom customers that in Asia compose of uh, Korea Telecom, PCCW, Singapore Telecom, PLDT. Uh, so satellites can be used for broadcasting media from space to the globe, or it could be used to deliver mobile phone signals from a major town to a village in a remote area. Hmm. Hmm. Um, now tell us about the uh, the investment side of the industry. Uh, you know, there's a lot of satellites up there. Um, there's a lot of people in this industry. But how, how exactly can you make your money, and, and what money is there to be made? I know you've had some fairly uh, prominent investors over the, the last few years since you founded the company, I think in 2006 here in Hong Kong. So uh, I, when, I, when I talk to people about the satellite industry, everybody gets very uh, confused, and they, they think it's really high-tech. But if you break it down, it's very similar to the real estate in the industry, meaning you need to have the rights to build a satellite. The rights come from a government. Like in Hong Kong, a property developer would actually go to an auction, pay for the rights to build a building. You you go through a similar process to get the rights to build a satellite. And once you have that right, you go through a financing mechanism. So there are financing institutions that provide you loans up to 75%, 85% of the capital. So, if, so as long as you had 15 to 25 percent of equity, and you had a sound business case and some anchor customers, you can actually easily finance a satellite. And uh, it's also similar to a real estate business because during the construction, it's very capital intensive. But once the satellite is up there, the operating expenses are very low. So the ongoing profit margins, the EBITDA margins are extremely high. You, in our industry, you can have anywhere between 70 to 85% EBITDA margins. So, are you, well, I think one of your investors was, was Citi. Um, you know, how did it work out for them? Okay, well, when we got started in 2006, we started with one satellite, which we took over from Lockheed. Citi was the principal investor back in, that, uh, in the heydays eight years ago. We now have uh, six satellites, and we're c- constructing two more. Uh, in two years, we'll have uh, eight satellites in orbit. Uh, when we when City came in, uh, we had approximately 32 million Hong Kong dollars worth of uh, sales, and this year we're going to be exceeding over 100 million U.S. dollars, uh, or somewhere around 800 million Hong Kong dollars. A couple years back, City exited uh, their investment, allowing Premier to come in, and City got they made approximately about two billion Hong Kong dollars worth in profits. And when Premier uh, exits, there are major shareholders. We believe uh, they're going to want to sell the company within one to two more years in the future. I expect them to be making at least $10 billion in profit. So this business can be extremely profitable if, it, if it's managed properly. You started small. You're an entrepreneur. Uh, you, you've grown the company in, in eight years from almost nothing, right? Yeah. When we, when we started, we, you know, like I said, we had basically about $4.5 million U.S. dollars or $32 million Hong Kong dollars in sales in uh, in 2016, we, we anticipate to be hitting about $2 billion in annual sales, Hong Kong dollars. And uh, we're right now the fastest-growing satellite operator in the world. We're, we're growing somewhere between 35 to 40% compounded on an annual basis. And by 2016, we anticipate we'll be in the top six or seven of all the global satellite operators. 
Brian, you should perhaps put some of your hard-earned uh, cash on top of a rocket and fire it into space. What do you think? <laughs> well, it just made me think of Masayoshi's son uh, from SoftBank putting $20 million into Alibaba, that stake now worth $58 billion U.S. dollars. So, Tom, go for it. <laughs> we'll see how big you can go and how high you can fly. Tom Choi, CEO of ABS, Asia Broadcast Satellite, and our media contributor, James Ross. And many thanks to Peter Lewis for joining us earlier on the program, looking at markets and conditions. Many thanks, Peter. So the market's uh, kind of stumbling along right now. We'll see what the day holds for us today. Uh, Australia lower, but Seoul is higher, and the Nikkei flat. How about the weather today? Well, expecting cloudy skies, uh, some showers, two squally thunderstorms. This is a brutal time of year, May and June. Just hunker down, take your umbrella out every time you go outside. The maximum temperature today should be right around 24 degrees. Back chat coming up next. Eight thirty-one. the latest in news with Etienne Lamy-Smith. The American Secretary of State, John Kerry, has announced that an American specialist team is joining the hunt in Nigeria to locate and free more than 200 schoolgirls abducted by Islamist militants. Nigeria's president, Goodluck Jonathan, has acknowledged the greatest threat facing his country is terrorism, but insisted it could be neutralized with international help. Earlier, Mr. Kerry's predecessor, Hillary Clinton, joined growing criticism of the Nigerian authorities, saying they had to perform better. The government of Nigeria needs to get serious about protecting all of its citizens and ensuring that every child has the right and opportunity to go to school in